I know that uh, some of you take offense to others eating at McDonald's. Um, you judge those people because of their fast food decision making. And uh, likewise, I've talked to some of you who, um, uh, for whatever reason, have it out against Walmart. Uh, but I, I still enjoy Walmart and um, tough to beat prices, a lot of variety. Now, you know, they have the food section. Tombstone pizzas are the cheapest at Walmart than any other store I've, I've learned, and so that makes it a go-to for me. But my guess is anyone who's ever shopped at Walmart has experienced this before. Uh, you're a little short on cash, uh, but you need an, an extra printer, okay, or some sort of electronic like that. And, uh, and so you, you drop about 40 bucks on a printer, okay? You know on a good day it's going to last about four months, Right? And uh, you, get, you get to the counter, okay, and the thing only costs 40 bucks. And after uh, she rings it through or he rings it through, uh, the, the, the person that's, uh, you know, the cashier says, hey, would you like to buy the, uh, the extra one-year, uh, you know, or the five-year warranty, right? Like, but would you like to buy that? And, and you, see, you see, like, the price ring up there on the, on the register. It's like 20 bucks, and you're kind of doing the math in your head, right? And... Most of us with that purchase are like, are you serious? Like, we kind of laugh at it, right? Like, first of all, I'm sure there's a lot of fine print that really doesn't cover much of anything. I think I'll just take my chances with the $40 printer, right? But you go to Lowe's or Whirlpool and you're, you know, you've been saving up to buy that washer, okay, that actually washes your clothes. You guys know what I'm saying? Because some of you have made do for a while on a washer that's just not getting it done, getting ready to spend six, seven, eight hundred dollars, and then you get to the, to the cashier, and they say, hey, listen, this comes with a five-year warranty. If only you pay 50, 60, 70, whatever it is, my guess is most of you in that instance are paying for the warranty. Why? Because there's a certain level of comfort that comes in knowing, listen, whatever I do to this washer, like, it's all good. And those of you who have bought a warranty with some kind of purchase like that, it like, it kind of stays out of your mind a little bit, right? I mean, you're like throwing stuff on it. You don't mind if the kids beat it up a little bit because it's under warranty, right? Like, that, that's how we function. Now, have you ever seen this? Okay, the warranty is one thing, but have you ever seen the old money-back guarantee? Okay, how many of you guys have actually cashed in on a money-back guarantee before? This is a, okay, what, what, what was the product? What was the product? It was some rotten food on, that you bought at Aldi. Okay. You're not judging Aldi, are you? Okay, good. I just want to make sure. Because Aldi is the Lord's gift. To those of us who are frugal, right? Yeah. Right? Not everyone could shop at Trader Joe's, everybody. Okay? $7 for a banana there. Anyway. So, so it's kind of... It's kind of encouraging, right? Like the money-back guarantee. You just go up, look, I mean, there, there's, there's a certain level of refreshment that comes in knowing that your purchases are covered. There's a, a lackadaisicalness almost that comes with it, right? Uh, I, I think a lot about this in terms of cars and purchases that I've made. Uh, when you buy a new home, it, it comes with, you know, that uh, you, some of you uh, do that kind of inspection that come, you know, covers things for a year, there's a lot of guarantees that are around us, and for those of you that have seen Tommy Boy or just know in general, like sometimes, sometimes guarantees don't feel that safe, right? 
So I want to I wanna ask you a different question. How do you feel about this guarantee? Like what happens in your, in your heart and your mind uh, when you see this, this guarantee? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the guarantee of victory through Christ. Uh, my worry, my contention, is that that same sort of laxness, that same sort of ease, that same sort of it's all good. We know we have ultimate victory in Christ. So we can just relax a little bit. Like there's no need to, you know, rustle our feathers or, or get all uptight about things. Listen, we can, we can kind of just coast, put it on cruise control. We have victory in Christ. It's all good. But let me reassure you, it is all good. Victory in Christ is overwhelmingly good. But what it doesn't mean, and what we're going to see in tonight's beautiful story and text, is we actually can respond to the guarantees and promises of God in a very different way than a washing machine, and I hope that brings great hope to you. Now, I'm so thankful for Pastor Jerry. I got to listen in to last week's teaching. I took 55 of us, and we went skiing out in Colorado. I had a great time, okay? Uh, all of us made it back almost, and so that's a win, but I was able to listen back to the teaching, so blessed by it. Uh, he uh, steps out a little bit, uh, the, the book of Joshua tonight. We're going to head right back into it. And so I want to regather us around uh, Joshua so that we can, man, just engulf this story. Put up my first map here. Here's, here, here was the majority of what we were dealing with initially in Joshua, okay? Uh, yes, uh, third grader drew this, all right? No, it's a little sketchy there, but kind of provides a 3D image for us. The Israelites come uh, to the Jordan River. They eventually cross the Jordan River, and then they take down uh, Jericho. Okay, God fought the battle of Jericho, not Joshua. Uh, next slide, as the map continues, we then uh, saw the battle at Ai, which is just south of Bethel there. So they lost in Ai, then won in Ai. Right now their record is 2-1. and one. Two weeks ago, okay, our last teaching in 2016, we saw the shrewd Gibeonites with cunning, come to Joshua and say, oh, we're from a faraway country and we desire to make covenant with you. They were so cunning that they brought like old wineskins, you know, kind of tore, uh, tore them up a little bit. They brought some, you know, uh, old sandals. They, you know, rubbed it on rocks a little bit. They even had old bread to play the part, the masquerade. What happens? Joshua doesn't pursue the Lord, doesn't seek the Lord's wisdom. And because of that, Joshua and the nation of Israel get in a covenant with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite land, which is, which is completely anti what the Lord had commanded them to do. Well, there is massive fallout, and tonight a collision course that was created because of that covenant. So, oh my goodness, my friends, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. Listen. I know some of you guys grew up uh, loving Jesus in the 90s. My favorite band in the 90s uh, Christian music was a band called Bleach. Okay, a great detergent, but also a phenomenal band. Just by raise of hand, how many of you guys have heard of the band Bleach? Okay, yes, thank you, my people, my people. I see you, Brian Williams. All right. Now, 
1999, Bleach came out with a song called Sun Stand Still. And I've been jamming that song ever since 1999. Never have got to preach the story. But now, my friends, here we go. Joshua chapter 10. I've seriously, for like two hours before tonight, just been jamming that song. So if I start air guitar, and please forgive me. Here we go. Verse 1 of Joshua 10. As soon as Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. We've just described all of this. Verse 2, look at this. He feared greatly, does this king of Jerusalem, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities... And because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. Now, this is some bold statements about the Gibeonites. I know what many of you were thinking two weeks ago. The Gibeonites used their cunning and intelligence and wisdom to make a covenant because they were weak. But here we see that is absolutely not the case. All of their men, Scripture says, in Gibeon are warriors. Not only do they have some brute, but they also have some brain, which is really, really, you know, interesting to see this. And so the king of Jerusalem, he's like, oh my goodness, the Gibeonites have made peace. We need to do something. And so verse 3, we see what happens in what they do. So Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, said to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon saying, come up to me, verse 4, and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Cue the map, just so we're on the same page. What he wants is a five-king massive assault that goes against the Gibeonites. Why does he want this? Well, I think... What's driving him is fear. He's fearing that he's next. Maybe he believes, does the king, that through this alliance, that together five certainly are stronger than one. And so maybe if they come against the nation of Israel together, they can take it down, beginning with the Gibeonites. Maybe they think that that the Gibeonites are kind of a soft spot now in the heart of Israel. What I know about fear is when it drives decision-making, bad things happen. Uh, Some of you guys like scary movies. And there's a certain um, similarity in most scary movies, is people do very, very stupid things, right? Why do they go back in the house? Ever. Ever. Right? You're like, why? Do not go back in there. Like, no one under any circumstance. You can run. Like, there's a road. There's a car. Why would you go back in there, right? Oh, we forgot our sandwiches. I mean, just like the silliest. The silliest things, right? When people are fearful, it causes them to do crazy, idiotic, questionable things. And that's what happens here. Is this king is reaching out, fueled by fear, which has been a dominant theme so far in Joshua. There's been a lot of fear. The Israelites at times uh, have fear. Joshua has feared a whole lot of fear from the nations around them. Fear 
can cause horrible decision making. Next slide. And so the whole summation of this decision now, the whole summation of it, is driven by something internal in one man. It's interesting to me that how one person's fear can rally a crowd. Uh, You've been brought to the party before, for lack of a better term. Because one person's fear sold you on being a part of their rally, of their alliance. Next slide, let's say it this way. Decisions fueled by fear will overlook critical facts and perspective. Uh, Some of you have built a decision on fear and haven't talked to that person that wronged you three weeks ago. You're so afraid of saying something to them and what the response would be if you finally challenged them on how it made you feel. Uh, Some of you have made decisions that have been built on fear for your family. And now you're realizing that you haven't just harmed yourself in it, but three, four, five, six other people in the process. Uh, You see, when we make decisions that are fueled by fear, we are completely driven by this angst inside of us, right? We're not thinking things all the way through. We're overlooking, sidestepping facts. That's what happens here. The king hasn't fully processed it. He just doesn't want to die. So because of that, he rallies the crew. Verse 5, then... The five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. One of my big struggles with Joshua all along is that sometimes it can feel like a video game. You guys know what I'm saying? Um... I, t- I take uh, my kids now to Dave and Buster's. They love it. It's a lot of fun. And there's a game there uh, at Dave and Buster's that brings me back to my childhood. Uh, Battleship. You guys remember Battleship, right? With the little pegs. You sunk my battleship, okay? That was the old school version, okay? The new school version, if you haven't seen this, is now you're like sitting in a literal submarine, right? And like submarines are passing by. And, and so, you know, I, I swipe my little card and... and Like, I don't have to explain anything to Maddox, okay? He sees triggers, he sees joysticks, and he sits down, and the dude just becomes a submarine killer, right? Like, like, like he's just taking them down. But it's crazy and almost a little bit heart-wrenching when you start to realize that something that seems so childish in a video game, people have died in submarines. I mean, it's, it's been very, very real for families who have lost husbands or wives It's crazy, right, in our culture how much uh, the video game mentality has lessened the reality of certain truths. And for me, it's so hard at times to get into the story of Joshua because it feels almost far-fetched. We can't touch it. We can't see it. We're not watching it on CNN. And so it's just like, okay, they, they all rallied. This is really, really nice. If you feel that way, you're going to miss the power and the impact of what's happening. These are real people, very fearful of losing something that they have built. These kings are pagging, yes, but they're trying to protect their people. They're trying to protect their reputation. And so they are coming to kill. Okay, they're they're not coming to play checkers and the winner goes home. Like, this is not happening. 
They are coming to take out the Gibeonites. This is not a video game. This is real. And so they gathered their forces. And the scripture says they went up and they encamped around Gibeon and made war against it. Verse 6, this is insane. Oh my goodness. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, several miles away, saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Do you guys understand what they're asking? The Gibeonites have just deceived the nation of Israel into a covenant. Israel has caught them in the deception. Last chapter, okay, at the end of chapter 9, we see Joshua go to the Gibeonites and say, why did you deceive us? There's no secrets here. It's all out. And so the people that deceived are reaching out to those whom they deceived and now asking to be saved. This is crazy. And now you know the essence of prayer. Now you know the truth and reality of our crying out to God. The same God who we betray and the same God who we turn our back on and the same God who we blaspheme and the same God who we live when it's convenient for is that same God that we cry out to. And thanks be to God that he sees us not in our betrayal, not in our back turning, not in our prone to wandering. He sees us through the lens of Jesus who is making intercession for us. You guys understand? So the premise of prayer is we continue to go to God through Christ in spite of deceiving, in spite of betraying, in spite of our sin. When we look at it in terms of the Gibeonites, it's like, how could they ever ask? And yet we did it this morning. Turned our back to God in sin last night, woke up this morning again asking him for things. Thanks be to God for his grace and his mercy. And it's interesting to me that the Gibeonites, in spite of that, they still ask. The response, my friends, begins to take us down a road that I believe is the reason why we've all gathered here tonight. Verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. Whoa, 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 whoa. They ask. Joshua's response, even though he was deceived, is they get up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him. And all the mighty men of valor. Why does Joshua go? Why does he go? Somebody, interaction here. Why does he go? He made a what? He made a covenant. And this is going to be hard for us to understand. But he is true to his word. His yes means yes. We trivialize the small things when it comes to our word. And I believe most of us wouldn't even consider the fact that we gave our word in this situation. 
Seriously, for the, for the most of us, and I'll include myself at times, certainly. We get the facts. We have made a covenant. Oh, yeah, but we get the facts. Whoa, hold on a second. Tell me again. You got five armies coming to Gibeon? Like, this is, this is not good. Well, we gave our word. Well, I mean, yeah, but I was, cry- you know, I was crossing my fingers behind my back. It's all good, right? Those Gibeonites, they deceived us anyway. They betrayed us. They lied to us. We owe them nothing. Hey, I'll be there in five minutes. Have you ever said that before and it meant 15? Right? Hey, let's get lunch next week. I mean, never. Have you ever said that? Right? Right? Hey, let's, let's hang soon. And what we mean by that is I just hope you think I'm a nice person, that I would want to, in some false reality, actually spend some time together. We trivialize, when it comes to our word, the small things. How in the world could we let our yes be yes in the big things? Because this is lives at risk. This is an entire army that's going to have to march. This isn't, hey, I'm going to be there in 10 minutes, and it's okay if I'm three minutes late, my friends. This is something much larger. Okay, I want to go ahead and give all those of you who are married that are coming to the marriage retreat, we are going to be diving into this in tremendous proportion. What are these vows that we share? Like, are they just poetic? In our hopes of poetic justice? Or on that altar, is that vow mean something? Does that vow have some sort of weight to it? To Joshua does it. So, even though he hears five armies are coming to Gibeon, he gets up and he goes. And verse 8 is incredible. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. On his way to the battle, God guarantees victory. He's already stood up. He's already gathered the troops. He's already been obedient to the covenant to his word. And on his way to the battle, the voice of the Lord affirms his victory. Could you imagine what that must mean to Joshua at that moment where in his heart he has to be wrestling with, okay, I know this whole covenant was built on deception. I'm wondering if God is really with us. And God says, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. We are always on the way to battle, always. There's never a moment where we are not on the way to battle. And the unfortunate thing for us treating it like a video game is the immensity and intensity of that battle rarely if ever hits us I pray it does right now next slide I want you to see this in a couple different contexts Ephesians 6 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but 
against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is now. We are in a fight. Now, many of you know what the next passage says. So we put on the full armor of God. We get ready. We prepare to battle. God has given us the tools to battle, but I want to make sure you know something. Every day you get up to work. Every day you go to school. Every single day you walk across that neighborhood of yours. It doesn't matter. Every single moment of our lives, we are stepping into battle, on the way to battle. Another passage that I think will be helpful is in 1 Peter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which rage war against your soul. How many of you guys can attest to that war. So if, if you can't feel or sense the enemy coming against you, then maybe you know the war that is all the time raging in you, the dead man versus the new man, the old man versus the now clean man. This who I used to be versus now who I am in Christ. What I'm saying is the war is always on. The battle is always present. So my question, next slide, and I hope you understand this, is what is your response to guaranteed victory in Christ? You see what I'm saying? You can believe that the battle is on, but this truth could mean nothing. Yeah, the battle's on, but it's all good. Like, I've got guaranteed victory in Christ. Mark, what's the big deal? In the end... My belief in Jesus means I will spend an eternity with God. So I can get lax now, right? I can be lackadaisical. I can, you know, sink into laziness. I can get on my heels instead of my toes. You understand? But I believe there's a different way. The battle is here. It's raging. You guys know what? You've experienced it today. You've felt it today. You've come to moments of sin or not sin. And the way movies describe it is like an angel and a demon. Right, like on our shoulders, like whispering things into our ear, trivializing even that moment, making that into a video game. Now, as for me and my house, I have lost some battles. Anyone else? I've lost some. Even though I'm given, just like anyone in Christ, guaranteed victory, I have went into moments of sin or not sin and I've indulged and I've catered to my flesh and I've allowed my insecurity to drive my decision making. Uh, even just earlier, I'll be honest with you, I, I walk into the building here earlier and my sons have a Capri Sun and they're running up this aisle squirting Capri Suns at one another. Right? True story, okay? And so I have to go get the mop from the back. Thankfully, a brother helped. And, and the next time I saw my boys, I have to be honest, my first response was not grace and love, you know? I mean, I was like, seriously, Capri, son, you know? And they're kind of like laughing like they've been creative, you know? Dad, like Capri, son, has a good squirt flow. It was awesome, you know? They need to be taught. They need to be disciplined, I saw myself even in that moment prone to anger. I've lost some battles. 
My guess is some of you have as well. But I can't live my life now in spite or in view of those lost battles. My my life, just like yours, can't be driven by the fact that, you know what, some have gone down and lost tally. We, We have sinned. We failed. We've hurt others. We've created a history, a lengthy list of hurt behind us. But my friends, the hope and the reality of Christ is that we have guaranteed victory. And the prayer then is that our response to that guaranteed victory is an awareness of the battle and a fully presentness in it. It's easy to wake up every day. Here we go, another day. It's all good. Then you wake up and the week's gone by and the month has gone by. Seriously, I just turned... I just turned a few years, all right? Right? Okay? And I I know, listen, I'm probably the median age here, and so thankful for the season, folks. So, like, so thankful for where everyone is at in that. Okay? But it's like you wake up one day, and you're like, dude, I am am this old? Okay? And you're like, you're not going to say it? No, I'm not. It's all good. Okay? Right? And, And I know some of you guys have woken up, and you're like, I'm 65 Like, where did the last 20 years go? We are in a battle. And what I'm saying is, we have an opportunity to remain, even though we have guaranteed victory, in the fight. So Joshua now, guaranteed victory. It's yours, buddy. So is he just going to, like, skip to the loo around the Gibeonites? High five some people. Hey, it's all good, everyone. The Lord has promised victory today. And he puts on his, you know, victory, you know, a victory cloak and he's running around. No, there's action involved. And the action involved is incredible. Verse 9 says, so Joshua came upon them suddenly. He hasn't lost his strategy. Remember at AI, he came at night, does it again. Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Let me make sure we understand that hike, 20 miles up an elevation of 3,300 feet. This isn't your walk around the neighborhood. This is a whole bunch of warriors, including Joshua, who's very seasoned, up 3,300 feet and 20 miles, all in the moonlight. Verse 10, incredible. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Medeca. And they, verse 11, look at this, fled before Israel while they were going down the descent of Beth Horon. The Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Now, we haven't even gotten to the crazy part of the story, but can you imagine this scene? I mean, they've come at night. These five armies are feeling, I would have to think, pretty confident. They're looking around at their numbers, and they're strong. 
And then all of a sudden, because the army comes at night, the Lord, it says, throws them into panic. My guess is confusion. Maybe even wondering about whose army is which, who's the enemy, who's an ally. And then all of a sudden, when they begin to flee, hail falls down from the sky. Can I ask you a question? If the Lord is interested in protecting the Gibeonites who are a Canaanite nation who deceived the nation of Israel, who through that deception got into a covenant with Israel, if he is interested in fighting for them, what about his sons and his daughters? Can you see this just for a second? The Lord is going to war for a nation that got in the covenant with his people through deception, and he's protecting them. How much more for his sons and daughters? How much more is God fighting for us? How much more has God fought for us? Again, I know many of you think that um, this is as you would describe and as I've described at times in my life too. Well, this is the God of the Old Testament, right? The God of the Old Testament. And then here comes the God of the New Testament. Can we agree, have a quick reminder, same God, right? Same God. Hebrew says, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same God. My point, is he going to rain down hailstones on our enemies? I'm not making that point. Some of you have prayed that before, right? Okay, you have an enemy, you're like, Lord, just one little cloud, you know, like the Care Bears, and bring down some hailstones, right? Please. Not saying that at all. What I am saying is that the same God who protected here is the same God who protects us now. The question is, what kind of protection? We're going to leave that for just a little bit. Are you ready for verse 12? Oh, my dear goodness. This is crazy. At that time, I don't even know how this would pop in his mind. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. Uh, first of all, just so we can level set. Has anyone ever asked God to stop the cosmos before by raise of hands? We can be together. Okay. No, one. It's too bad. This brother is guaranteed victory. Victory is his. Again, like he could just skip right on into Gibeon. And instead, what does he do? He pleads for God to stop the sun so the battle could be completed in daylight. Does that have any hint of laziness? Any hint of lackadaisicalness? Any hint of being on his heels? No. Guaranteed victory and remains on his toes. Guaranteed victory and pleading to the Lord. Guaranteed victory, listen, and asking for miracles. 
Do you guys understand? We are in the fight, in the battle. We have guaranteed victory. And yet, we rarely have ever asked God to do the impossible. Why? We're fearful that if he doesn't, our view of God will be hindered. Instead of celebrating the no's. You guys understand what I'm saying? We're more fearful of God saying no and that changing our perspective of God as a prayer answering God than we are asking for the miracle. I see an old seasoned blessed leader and brother who asked God to stop the sun. Now, of course, of course, of course, scientists, geographer people, um, Others that are smart have have tried to reason this away. We haven't even seen what happens yet. They've tried to reason this story away, just like much of the Bible. Well, really, it was it was an eclipse. Really, it was just you know they were in Alaska for a minute because you guys have heard of the Alaskan uh, is it summers or winters where it's like sunny all day. I, I, true story, I read a commentary that said that was the case, okay? It's like they're in Alaska all of a sudden, right? Now, there are other theories, and I'm making light of them because I don't believe them. But I have to tell you that they're there. What I believe is that verse 13 is literal, and the sun stood still. And the sun stood still. Now, I'm trying as best I can, trying as best I can to feel what Joshua must have felt in that moment. He cries out, guaranteed victory, asking God. And then as the day goes on, we don't have an indication that God says, yes, I'll do it. But that as the day goes on, Joshua's looking up in the sky and it hasn't moved. And you guys know they're not wearing wristwatches. They're gauging, gauging the time of the day based upon where the sun is at. I, I have to believe that a couple hours goes by. And he's watching what's happening around him in the war and he feels the sun beating down on his back. Just imagine that moment as this brother says, he did it. He is stopping the sun from moving. The earth axis, like however it is that you describe it, it's happening. You see, when we pray the prayers that seem impossible, we are providing an opportunity, no matter whether the answer is yes or no, to experience intimacy with God. What I'm saying, my friends, is some of you feel very not connected to the Lord, and I believe a huge reason is because you have stopped praying the impossible. Will the answer always be yes, no, and you should be thankful for that, because if God answered every prayer in the way that you wanted it, we'd be in a world of hurt. But even in the no's, what I've learned more and more in my life is it provides a huge opportunity to celebrate the wisdom of God and the perspective of God. Joshua sees, as does the army, 
as do the Gibeonites, as do these five kings. The sun stands still. And the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? This is an ancient historical writing. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord, look at this, heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. What we teach here is that when you study the Bible, it's absolutely essential to begin with the character of God. And so what I'd like to do, and feel free to express yourself however it is in a celebratory manner that you'd like, I just want to look at what God does in this story. Is that cool? Check this out. God first. God, no one else, guarantees victory. The character of God, in spite of the deception, in spite of the faulty covenant, we could even say, guarantees victory, provides it, gives it. Then God does this. God then fights for the Israelites. It says in the scripture that more were killed from the hailstones than from the swords of the Israelites. God fights for them. Goes to war for them. Puts them on his back. And I know what some of you are thinking right now because you're already seeing the characteristic and parallel and you're wondering, well, how, how does God fight for us? And I ask you, rather, how has God not fought for us? You see, the sending of a son, his one and only son, from the realms of heaven, in humility, in the likeness of man, that whole plan of redemption was a massive battle plan against sin. Again, I know we can trivialize it. I know it can feel like a game. God has fought for us and continues to. And one day the scripture says in the ultimate battle, the final battle, he will and therefore we will win. Next slide. God judges those who deny him. We've said it before as we studied Jericho and as we studied Ai and now five more nations. We're going to see the fallout next week is those nations made a decision. They made a decision to deny God. And certainly some of you have wrestled with the realities of why would God kill every person in Ai? Why would God kill every person in Jericho minus a prostitute with, her, with a name in her family? It's because they denied him. This principle, this truth is the same. Those who deny God will spend an eternity away from him. Why you chose to be away from him now? You're making that decision now, turning your back on him now. Next slide, God also does this. He answers the prayers of Joshua. (laughs) And And not just the prayers, my friends. Next slide, let's say it this way. This is awesome. God performs an impossible, in quotations, miracle. I put it in quotes there because certainly nothing is impossible with God. 
Let me hang here just for a second. Are you willing in your own prayer pursuit of the Lord to begin to pray for the impossible to happen even though the answer so far in your reality has been no? Some of you have been praying for the salvation of those around you that seem impossible for years. Please, please don't give up. You're building a very intimate path between you and the Lord. Some of you have been praying for healing. You've been praying that cancer would go, to, go away. We just got news, uh, uncle of Heidi's not doing good at all, going in for some tests, probable cancer. It's impacted and affected all of us, and some of us have prayed for healing, and the answer has been no on this earth. We must not tarry in continuing to ask God to do the impossible, my friends. My contention is, and please be encouraged by this, even if God says no, the intimacy that we experience with him is beautiful. Not just all these things, though. God also protects the Gibeonites who deceived the nation of Israel. So to build in you, and I pray in me right now, this understanding of who our God is for a second, this reality of what our God is doing, let's look at these terms a little bit shortened and a little more specific for us. God guarantees, God fights, God judges, God answers, God does the impossible, and God, my friends, protects. Now, the same God. So listen, we are in the battle. We are in the fight right now. I mean, we are amidst it. Our flesh is raging war against us. The enemy is coming at us. My question is, where are you going to turn? Is it just going to be waking up one day and all of a sudden saying, oh, well, I have ultimate victory in Christ. It's all good. Or, my friends, right now in this moment, are you more stirred than ever to get back on the offensive in your walk with Christ against the enemy, against your flesh? The Holy Spirit, my friends, is going to war and it's inside of us and we have guaranteed victory. And so it is time to fight. He's fought it. We get to put on the full armor of God. The helmet of salvation. The breastplate, the belt of truth. He's equipped us to fight. To go against these things. And I'm just saying right now, some of you are realizing that you have been in a slumber. No fighting at all. Your flesh has been winning over and over. The enemy is coming at you. You're believing so many lies. And the one truth, the one inkling of truth that you've been holding on to every single night when you lay your head on the pillow is, well, at least I have ultimate victory in Christ. In the end, I'll be victorious. But what about tomorrow? When we turn from our sin, we experience victory in Christ. When we forgive those who are struggling to forgive, we share in the victory of Christ now. When we share with our neighbors the power of the gospel that has changed our lives, we share in the victory of Christ now. 
See, my friends, victory isn't ours just in the end. It is ours now. And so as the Gibeonites were protected by a God who was merciful, I believe, maybe for you and I, was setting up an opportunity that we could share how we're protected. Colossians 3 says this, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden there, protected there, saved there, set aside there. We are protected in Christ, guaranteed victory. I know it feels like some of you are losing. The battle has been overwhelming. Listen, open your eyes again tonight. Start praying for the impossible again. Start watching God doing the miracles around us. He is protecting his kids. He's going to give you opportunities tonight to walk away from your sin. He's going to give you a chance through his Holy Spirit tonight to be emboldened. To walk over to that brother and sister that you've been holding a grudge against for years and finally saying, I am sorry, victory in Christ in that moment. And so tonight, as we await the final triumph in Christ, we're going to come to the table. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, lives who are hidden in Christ, we're going to come to this table. And this is not a walk of shame. This is not a walk of condemnation. This isn't a walk of yesteryears or maybe tomorrow's. This is a walk of hope, of life, and of victory. God, you have done a work through Christ. And so as you take a piece of that bread that represents the broken body of Christ, and as you dip it in the cup that represents the shed blood of a savior may we together rise up and believe that God will and does hold the son in his hands but the greater miracle is our salvation let's come to the table and celebrate our salvation tonight